And you know, I'm grateful for that too. I'm grateful for the fact that he came in and he did his job and then left me to grow as a man. That's just the way it should be. Welcome back everybody to Young to Live By. Now we've spoken before on the channel many times about the necessity, or as a, as a child grows old, the necessity for a father to confirm his son. And so I was wondering in the broadest terms, because it's a word like relating actually mm. that comes up in like, consultations and chats with friends or anything like that, that people aren't entirely sure what confirmation means. Yes. Yeah. I know you've got a couple of stories to tell on that. Yeah. But what, what, what does it mean? Well, broadly speaking, it's uh, a portal, uh, a doorway which you pass through. Once you've been confirmed in that sense, you're not the same as you were before. So it's vitally important that confirmation is done properly, otherwise people are held in a limbo state. Um, this is something that the Eastern traditions understand. Mm. They talk about a bardo, an in-between space that's neither one thing nor the other. And it can be a sudden thing, which we, we'll show an example of, or it can be progressive over time. So long as it achieves what it sets out to do, then it's good enough. But basically it's moving from one state to another state, uh, and you're not the same afterwards. That's confirmation. But in the particulars of it, it's confirmation of an identity shift from one status to another that is part of your continuity of being, so it provides a way station along the way mm. of lifespan development. Mm. So we've talked about um, simplifying things from yeah. a clinical point of yes. view, of, of, yeah. of stripping away um, all the psycho babble yeah. really, haven't yeah. we, yeah. if you're working with somebody because they're yes. unlikely to be interested in all of that, yeah. and you might just overly complicate things by yeah. having to introduce a new language with which to yeah. understand things yeah. whereas and most people are familiar with the idea of instinct instinct and relating and, yes. and both of those things are real yeah we have Indeed an instinct to relate we, we have to or we can't adapt yeah. adapt to the outer world or the inner world so you need that yeah. that has to be in place and the father is a good thing or a bad thing in relation to the early imprinting of that uh, particularly with the outside world. The mother helps you, as a boy anyway, to relate to the inner world. The father should help you relate to the outside world. That's the ideal mm. setup. Um, and for a boy where that doesn't happen properly, then there'll be all sorts of issues that can be corrected later through other father figures, if you're fortunate enough to find one that, that's effective, but certainly through a peer group. And that's for good biological mm. adaptive reasons, even if you go back to the, the Paleolithic, you're looking at a tribal setup at that point. But then it depends upon the state of the culture within which yeah. the peer group thrives. If the culture is sick, the peer group will reflect that, yeah. even if it's only in opposition to it. You get a compensation then. This is where you get youth culture coming from. It picks up on the sicknesses of the culture of the day mm. and compensates for them. In the past that wouldn't have happened because we wouldn't have had the luxury of being able to do that. The peer group would have to, uh, of males, would have to form the army, the soldiers, the tribal warriors. They wouldn't have rejected the culture or compensated mm. for it. We're in a strange period of yes. human history right now. Peer, peer groups these days for at least my generation are existing less and less and less and less and less. Mm. The, the, um, being at university, so many people, unless you were like socially top ranked and then you would form a peer group. The bottom guys, they don't form it at all. Mm. At all. Or they mix it with women. 
which when you're in that need is an absolute disaster. Yeah. That's not a confirming peer group no. what's, what's, what, uh, whatsoever. Mm. Or you just sit by yourself or you play online video games or something yeah. like that. There's nothing confirmatory about any of that whatsoever. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, the, and it's the culture condemns it all completely. Yeah. yeah, Completely, that's the problem. Well, the video games are an instinctive cathexis, if you like, of libido in a Freudian sense into a virtual representation of the outer world, therefore of culture and the environment. So it seems to satisfy, but it doesn't, and that's why you get the addiction coming through with games. The addiction is a struggle. It's a struggle between instinct to go out and live a real life, and then the fear of the real world, or the lack of opportunity, which suppresses the instinct, generates anxiety, then attachment to the game, which gives you a brief uh, period of release of appropriate hormones to make you feel better, but you need to keep reinforcing that. Mm -hmm. But it's the adaptation to the outer world, which is mirrored virtually in the game, mm -hmm. that keeps you trapped. Mm -hmm. You are meant by your instincts to go out, and it's the same kind of trap, I will not say the word, but it begins with P because YouTube doesn't like the P word. You know the word, don't you? Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I won't say that word, but it's, it's the same, that that is also a cathexis of instinct. In other words, there are instincts that are normal, trying to power themselves through, but you find that the libido is cathected into virtual representations of the expression of that instinct, and yeah. it's unhealthy. The father has a lot to do with this. Mm. Can I just add something to that, Steve, which is the kind of the, the notion of um, ferality, really. Of young being feral, boys, being yeah. feral. Yeah. yes, that idea of, I mean, the actual literal translation of it, I think, is wild beast, but mm. it just suggests to me, anyway, like a, a natural state mm. where, particularly for boys, for young boys growing up, yeah. where they, they, they instinctively want this engagement with the environment, yeah. and obviously um, the culture doesn't always allow for that, and I, I think that's definitely... Um, certainly seeing our own son grow up, so mm. over the past maybe 15, going, getting on for 20 years, there have been changes in that regard oh, as, have, yeah. as to the kind of freedoms that young lads have to go out yeah. and to oh, play man. and explore. I mean, I can remember Gareth going out sometimes, he might have been, what, 9, 10, 11, around that age, and he'd go out for hours. Mm. And half the time, mm. to be honest, we wouldn't know where no. it was. Mm. But that was all part of that exploration. It was, yeah. and, and, he and, it had was all, and it was encouraged. And it was encouraged by us. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I just think that um, there are so many young lads mm. who have been prevented from just doing even that. Oh, there are, uh, yeah. And which then, is then a, it forms a complex in them. I was yes, talking to a young lad yes. the other day, uh, what would he be, 21 or something, and I'm asking about his, yeah. his, his peer group, yeah. and he's like, well, you know, I've, I've got a group of lads, and we do our banter, you know, yeah. and it's like, but I want to mature and, like, grow up. I, I, I'm really guilty. I'd, I'd rather be a better person. You know, I, I make really non-PC jokes, mm. and I'd be edgy, mm. I think that just makes me a bad person. But as soon as I was like, that's normal, that is what lads do, yeah. it's healthy to have banter, it it is, is. It's, it's healthy to be idiots together yeah. to some degree, yeah. it's like, oh, okay, shit, well... Where did that come from? It was the culture, yes. which is taking it away from so many people. We, obviously yeah. we talk about the mum and the dad and mental health. It's like we cannot ignore the influence of the culture it's having on people today. Yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, you've just said, for yeah. example, I can't say the P word because YouTube doesn't like it. It's like... Yes. Yes. What yeah. Censorship, isn't it? It's, it's a censorship. Yeah. Yeah. It's damaging the mental health of so many people. Mm. It's an absolute disaster. It is. 
But when he when he was that young, I mean, mm. I, I did encourage him you did to, encourage to explore it, the and countryside. I think that's a good thing. And I, I did actually go out with him on a few of his little adventures uh, yeah. in, in the countryside, which was like I used to do. But I used mm. to do it with with peers. He, mm. you know, at that time, he didn't have mm. that many uh, peers who would have done that because mm. they were, you know. Mum and Dad says I can't do well, that kind right. of thing. Yeah. But I went with him to a local stream. He didn't know I was going to do this. He's a young boy, and I, I, I did an initiation ritual, like a baptism. Sprung this on him as a complete surprise, mm. uh, and you could call it pagan because it wasn't Christian. He's never been baptized uh, as a Christian. He's never had that put on him. If he wanted it, he knew he could he could go for it. But I thought it's important for him to have a ritual in a natural place as a father, confirming him as a as um. a. A boy who mm -hmm. is in a natural place and is about to go yeah. into the world and act within the world. Uh, whether that had any like, I mean, you'll probably talk to him and interview him here. Mm. Um, he will have a different memory or perspective on that. But from a father's point of view, the intention was to do that and, and to offer that for him. Because I never got that. Yeah. Uh, but I, I do think it would be important to at least have done it in that symbolic sense. Oh, definitely. I, th I think you gave him his love of the natural world. He's, he's never, yeah. ever lost no, that. No, he hasn't. No, no. 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 And uh, we based it around the idea of the green man, the Celtic uh, deity, Viridius. Mm. Um, and it was a spontaneous thing. Although I had it in mind that I'd, that I'd probably do it, I, I, I think with a, with a lot of things, it's in, you know, initiation ceremonies um, should be surprises. You shouldn't give a person a chance to prepare for it and that will go against a lot of what people think mm. yeah. but if you actually look at um, cultures around the world and in history they would do that the child would be taken from the mother in the middle of the night and go through an experience a transformative experience mm. North American Indians do it mm. Spartans did things like that mm. so I thought that the best way to do that is, is to make it as natural as possible and a sudden state change where it's like saying, I confirm you now as a man in your own right, in this natural place, with your own spirit, mm -hmm. free of any contamination from anyone. I hand that to you. But didn't tell him I was going to do it. Yeah. I think that would have spoiled it. It would have spoiled it. would have dressed it up in, yeah. in, in, in the wrong way. Mm -hmm. It was just an attempt that I, that I made yeah. to do that. But um, then that allowed his instincts to line up properly. Yeah. There was no resistance then. No. No. And, and mm. I, I think you're making a very important point here. If I could just extend that, Steve, to the idea too of um, ritual, which obviously people try to get involved in in, in order to mm. sometimes recreate experiences that haven't happened, uh, yeah. initiations that haven't happened in the right way or have been incomplete. Yeah. And I think when you do it like that, the chances of it taking and taking properly are much greater yes. and you find that people tend to try and recreate initiations yeah. that have gone wrong or are incomplete in some way yeah. over and over again and, and yeah. so the, the actual ritual that they use becomes ineffective. That's a really good point. Uh, that goes uh, to the heart I think of what Mark Solms and the neuropsychoanalysts call um, well, it's the repetition compulsion from Freud, yeah. which is based on a prediction error. They say that that's their, their technical language, but if we unpack that, it's quite simple at bottom. You, you basically have an instinctive expectation of something like that. There's the prediction that it will happen. The error is that it didn't happen. That's not the error in the child it, or in the genome, in, in the expectation, in his ancestral psyche. That's not the error. The error is the fact that the culture, the environment, the family did not provide that. And because that happens, 
Mark Solms and the neuropsychoanalysts say it becomes uh, prematurely automatized, which in their language basically means it's lost from consciousness, goes into long-term memory, and is stored in such a way that you can't easily access it without emotion, mm. without contacting feeling. And feeling is the doorway to instinct. You know when an instinct is active in a transformative sense because you feel something so deeply and so powerful it moves you completely, every cell of your body lines up to complete that instinctive expectation. Where it's never happened, it becomes prematurely automatized. And then you get into this repetition compulsion of trying to seek out something that will achieve that. You may not know what that is, but then somebody comes along in a culture and says, let's go and bang drums in the forest. Yeah. You know, like, like Robert Bly's people, yes. who meant really well. I think Robert Bly was wonderful, great, and I really, really, res I genuinely respect Robert Bly's work and what he was doing in the 1970s and 80s. He was decades ahead of the people who are out on the internet now in terms of trying to help men. But there is a problem. There's a problem with that kind of ritual. It's uh, too artificial. Yeah. The anticipation is artificial, which is what, exactly. you're, which is what yes. you're saying, because yes. it's like, I'm going to go and do something. Yes. There's the conscious intentionality. Mm. Well, that's some, something of an artefact. If you think about Carl Jung, for example, those of you guys who are actually into him and know about mm. his life in any depth, if you read Memories, Dreams, Reflections, his autobiography, his personal myth, as he called it, in statement form. That's his true personal myth, by the way. The whole of the collected works, plus the red book and the black books, they're his personal myth. But the one he wanted people to read and understand is Memories, Dreams, Reflections. And in there, he talks about the communion service, about the bread and oh, the wine, yeah. Oh, yeah. and knowing that the wine was stale, knowing where the bread came from. He could not believe in the transubstantiation. This is the blood of Christ. This is the... No, yeah. it had no numinous quality for him, no deep emotional connection, yeah. no instinct. It was created, it was ritualised in that repetition compulsion That's sense, right. so it had no meaning for him. Mm. That's what he's trying to teach us. Mm. That's what Jung was trying to say about ritual. Mm and about the numinous and about instinct and that's why I tried with my son to surprise him and give him something that he had no reference frame for in an organised way. This was nature. You don't go deeper than nature, there's nowhere else to go. That's as deep as it gets. And the idea of uh, a deity which is about life, rebirth, regeneration, without the encumberment of an organised religion to contain and distort that affect, that emotional tone, was the intention I had. But for him, I thought, I've got to surprise him, I've got to put him in a river, a living river, in a green environment, away from any sound or noise or sign, electric pylons or cars or motorways or whatever it was. It had to be a natural environment and then confirm him in a way that it totally surprised him. But his genome would release mm. at that point mm. and understand that was the, that was the intention. Then it worked. Yeah, but it had to get away from everything that represented the normality. So it's not the stale bread, it's not the flat wine, it's real. Mm. Yeah, so we're talking about the importance of, um, of getting ritual right, for want of a better expression, mm. aren't we? Of, de of delivering yeah. uh, initiations mm. in, in the right way, because it, mm. if they're not done properly, they're, they're ineffective. They are. Yeah. And you, like you say, you get into this uh, repetition, yes. compulsion of, of tr you know, 
uh, trying to do the same thing over and over again yeah. and it not working. Yeah. And, and as you were talking about what you've done for Gareth, uh, our son, mm -hmm. I was reminded of um, an example of something that was done for you and your former occupation in, in the okay. police. Yeah. Um, when you, um, I think of Mike Evely, oh, yeah. um, yeah. who was our best man at our wedding. He was, yeah. And there was a an incident, a very, very unpleasant one, very challenging one for yeah. a young police officer yeah. where you yeah. were sent to a call, yeah. Steve, and uh, you, you may want to continue the story yourself. Oh, yeah. What, what um, took place there? Well, it, it's, no, um, it's no secret that I wasn't confirmed by my father. I'm going to go funny again, sorry about this, because <laughs> uh, this is, it's okay, it's just, uh, yeah. it's no secret, we've discussed that before, so... Yeah. Uh, and uh, I, I did hang around with gangs and then I joined another gang and it was called the police. That's another story but when I was in there I, was, I just joined as a cadet age 17 um, did some frontline shadowing if you like with, with uh, police officers. Fully frontline officer on my at 18 and a half and uh, the older men there, some of them had gone through the Second World War and then 30 years in the police. They were hard men. Mm. Um, and a young man like me, uh, as I was, at 18 and a half, and going out on the streets on your own, expected to deal with anything on your own, uh, not like it is now. It was tough. And uh, the incident that you're thinking of yes. was... Uh, I mean, this this guy, Mike Evely, I'll, I'll mention his name. I'll be grateful oh, to him for, <coughs> for his friendship, his mentorship. Yeah. Sorry, it's going again. <laughs> he, was only, he was only a young man himself. He was only a young man actually. himself, but I'll be grateful for yes. what he did for yes. us as yes. well, for our relationship yes. and supporting us. Yeah. for the rest of my days. Um, and one example of uh, how he helped me. I was on foot patrol, very young man, young teenager, not much experience in terms of the real world of the police. And uh, I remember coming to crossroads, literally how symbolic is that? There's a foot bobby in front of me, I will not name him. And uh, I could see some smoke in the distance, probably about a mile, no, less than, about, about, about just over half a mile. I could actually see the smoke. And I was walking towards it, I was 100 yards or so behind him. And I was on his beat. I should have turned left and gone to mine. And this was his patch. He should have gone towards the smoke. He didn't. He must have seen it. He turned left. And he went. And the radio called him up and he didn't answer his radio. And I heard that Mike was going to this call and it was a house fire. Uh, person believed trapped and I thought fuck you know uh, so I got on the radio and I said I'd go so I went and I just literally walked towards the, the sign of the smoke and when, when we got there uh, when I got there Mike was there fire service with there was an ambulance there and uh, the fire brigade had broken the front door down but the staircase had gone there was no way to access the upstairs the downstairs was nothing there um, no sign of life at all but the seat of the fire appeared to be upstairs. That's where there was still smoke coming out. The fire brigade got a ladder. And Mike said to me, come on, Steve.
Sorry. It's all right. Wow. You can cut anything you like. It's okay. <coughs> anyway, he was, he was only about 28, 27, I think, yeah. Mike, at the time. Not an old man at all. Really nice guy. He looked like a Spitfire pilot. Very distinguished. Very distinguished. He looked like somebody that did, could, could have, yeah, could have yeah. stepped out of a Spitfire in the yes. Battle of Britain. Yeah. And the fire service were not keen to go in. And he said, "Come on, Steve." And he went up there. I went up after him, and we went in to what was the bedroom, and there was this body on the floor. Uh, and. Uh, He'd cooked in his own fat, and his side had burst, and his intestines and his internal organs had spewed out across the floor. And uh, his arm was, was gone, but there was his hand. And the room was still smouldering. And uh, I mean, I'd seen and handled dead bodies up to that point a few times. I hadn't quite seen one like that. And there was neighbours out in the street. And uh, Mike uh, got the fire service to come up the ladder, to, you know, and to extinguish what was left of the, 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 the smoke. I and mean, you know, it was difficult to breathe in there. And their um, their contribution was to say, "Yeah, it's out now, lads. You handle that. We're not touching that." And uh, I looked at Mike, and he said, uh, "We've got to do this, Steve." This is, <coughs> this is a human being. And uh, I had a radio. And then the tunics we had then, we had the, op the option for harnesses, most of us didn't wear them. The radio was in the pocket, it had a little clip over it, it was in the, the, the tunic pocket. And uh, the fire side just ch chucked this sheet, which we had to slide under the body. And I was already stepping in this guy's fat that he cooked in. And I bent down, the radio fell out the pocket, splattered in onto his body, and I was covered in fat, human fat. All over my boots, all over my trousers, and across my tunic. And, uh, he encouraged me not to falter. And he, I didn't. He was calm, and I believed in him. We slid the, uh, the sheet under him, and uh, Mike picked up his hand, and uh, this uh, on-call on service funeral director turns up, and this big tin box is shoved up the uh, up the ladder and in there, and said, so we've got to get him in, and when we got him in, Mike put the hand in, and then we got it up, and we got it down the ladder to the on-call the on funeral director, which is just like an ordinary Ford Transit van. In the back of that, and that went off to what was then Clatterbridge Hospital. Yes. At that time, yeah. we had an accident, an emergency. Yeah. We followed it, and I was splattered in fat. And uh, even the doctor at the casualty had to certify death, opening it and just repulsed. And he said, Oh, I said, that's dead, that's dead. It looks like a casserole because he'd broken down inside the, uh, the tin thing. And it was a human being. Mm -hmm. and we had to contact relatives. And that's another story. Mm -hmm. Having to tell the relatives that that had happened and then I went back to the, uh, the police station and there was a football match on and I was down for duty at a football match and I went in to see one of these old R sergeants and I said look sergeant I need to change my boots, I need to change my trousers 
said, this is human fat. And he swiveled round in his chair and he said, no, get out of that football match like that. And uh, <coughs> Mike was with me and he put his hand on my shoulder like that. And I summoned up in that moment like that. I was all right. I went and did it. <coughs> I went home off duty. And I said, my dad saw me like that, and I said, he said, "What's up with you? What's all that?" I said, "Dad, it's human fat." And he just went. And I looked at my mother, and she was just blank, concerned but blank. And I thought, okay, okay, got you now, got you now. I've been to interacted with three sets of older authority figures here, an old R sergeant, my father and mother, and Mike, who saw me through it, and he, uh, he became my best friend in that job. And all through the time that uh, Pauline's father was trying to split Pauline and I do everything he could to stop it, Mike was there for us. They were, they were really good. They provided a bed for us. And Pauline was only 16, him and his wife Mary. And he became my best man, even though he'd had a head injury, a terrible head injury in the Toxif riots. He was still off work and injured and he turned up and he did all the wedding photographs and he did the best man bit, he did a wonderful speech and he saw us through that. That's what you call a friend. But more than that, he was a mentor. And I uh, took my values as a police officer from him. Uh, sorry, <coughs> I'm accessing deep, uh, deep, very, very deep structures. Uh, I can normally cope with them, you know, even as memories. But the thing is, when, at the time, I didn't, I wasn't traumatized by what I went through because he contained that uh, for me. Yeah. Uh, and it's only now I'm react, I'm reacting now, and I, I didn't react like this at the time. Yeah. And that's the that's the power of that. If, if you're with a group or an individual that can get you through things which are horrific by ordinary circumstances, if, if that is transformative. And what I'm feeling now is gratitude. Mm -hmm. To have been privileged enough to have gone through that horrific experience and at the same time get an angle on my father's failure. Uh, I mean, the old R sergeant, as I'm calling him, probably in his own way meant well, as if to say, come on now, you're in a frontline job, you might only be 18 and a half, mm -hmm. but you're amongst men. Mm. You know, get out there like that and show you're a man. I mean, that's probably what he didn't say that, that's probably what he meant. And that would have provided sufficient 
his coldness would have provided a sufficient, you know, adolescence still at that age, resistance to him to spite him enough to go out and do it. But that wouldn't have transformed me. I wouldn't have felt that that was a transformative experience. What did it was, uh, Mike. He knew I'd turned up there for him and the other Bobby had turned away. He knew it wasn't my direct duty to go there, but I went there because reports of a house fire, persons believed trapped. It was his beat, he was on the, the patrol car. He went there, my foot beat was two miles down the road, I was walking out to that, and the foot Bobby who should have gone there bottled out, turned left and went. And I, 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 I won't name him. No. I'll tell you later. Yes, it's okay. He, but, uh, but I, I went to back him up and then I walked into the nightmare with, potentially of a, a, a trauma. I did not get post-traumatic stress disorder. No. You wouldn't believe it maybe now, but, but this, as I say, is uh, the feeling that is the gratitude that that young boy felt. He got it just right, didn't he? He got it just right. Mm. And subsequently what he did for us, it all adds up. And then we drifted apart. And you know, I'm grateful for that too. I'm grateful for the fact that he came in and he did his job and then left me to grow as a man. That's just the way it should be. So uh, for me this, this, is a, this is accessing through an affect bridge, an emotion which I didn't feel at the time. It hasn't traumatised me except when I put it into a context and it's paradoxically, although it's distressing, it's also uh, it's, it's, it's a transcendence experience too. I dealt with a lot of things in that job and it was uh, on my own. Uh, I've walked into some terrible things, a lot of them were fatal car accidents uh, of serious injuries on my own at that age and I felt I could, I, I dealt with them because of that example. Some terrible ones, a police accident where a police officer's groin was ripped off, he was on a motorbike and he was hit by a car and uh, I was just a few feet away from it when it happened. I, it was on night and I was walking up the road and they had the radio on, on, the, on the petrol tank of the, uh, of the bike and it impacted the car which turned across his path, didn't see him and he was slung forward and it castrated him and he off the bike on the floor and it was on a humpback so there was traffic coming the other way, wouldn't have seen him, could have come over and hit him again and uh, I had to deal with that and with the driver who'd hit the guy and uh, the hullabaloo and all the rest of it and again I was the same age and other, other things too um, but I was able to deal with that because of Mike Hughley and uh, yeah so there you go the, the father complex or the father can turn up even in a young man who is not related to you and can carry you through things and initiate. He believed in us and in our relationship, him and his wife, and they supported us in uh, such an open way and gave such a lot of themselves without asking for a single thing in return. And I've taken that as a model when I help other people, and Paul and I have helped other people, not just as therapists, but as human beings, young people, and when we mentor anyone, and we've mentored many people. That's at the heart, that memory, that example, for me anyway, is there. That you should do that. You should do that. It doesn't matter whether you're an older man, like I am now, or whether you're still in your 20s. You can mentor someone. If you can do that, you should do that. That's, that's something good in the world to do. In a, in a world, sometimes, that's full of evil and, and, and horror. Uh, I will never forget what he did.
never. Thank you for watching this episode of Young to Live By. If you haven't already, make sure you download our free PDF for integrating your shadow. It includes the most advanced theory on the topic available anywhere on the internet, as well as a full practical breakdown. If you've ever wanted to integrate your shadow, this is honestly the way to do it. Thanks again for watching and take care.